welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Common Bridge Midweek. Um, This is a podcast that's in response to uh, some requests that I received on the Nathan Kaufman interview. Now, Nathan Kaufman is uh, an expert and consultant in the field of um, of healthcare. And a couple of weeks back, Rich did a podcast, and this is that podcast, but it's uh, two parts put together as one because I had some requests from folks that wanted to pass it along as one unit and uh, and, and copy that link to some people in the healthcare field, um, but. I can't recommend one of our podcasts more than this. There's a couple of them recently that have been terrific, and this is one of them. Um, You will learn more about healthcare and things you hadn't thought about about healthcare in one hour than you ever have before. So I really highly recommend that uh, that you listen to this again. And uh, if not, pass it along to somebody because it's incredible. Um, anyway, without further any further ado, here is uh, Rich Helpy and Nathan Kaufman um, discussing um, healthcare in the U.S. So, first of all, welcome to the Common Bridge. I'd like to uh, bring my colleague and good friend uh, Nathan Kaufman. Uh, this is a real treat for us. Nate is one of the most knowledgeable people about healthcare, healthcare policy, healthcare financing. He understands the legislation. He understands the economics. Uh, He has a great way of bringing this right down to what a household can afford, uh, back to the economics amongst physicians and hospitals. Uh, He he also predicted, I think, 10 years in advance that we were going to have health care reform in 2010. Um, He has been very, very accurate in his prognostications. You might call him a visionary with a lot of analytical data to back it up. Uh, so welcome from San Diego, Nate Kaufman, Kaufman Strategies. Thank you, Rich. Uh, that was a nice introduction. I don't deserve it. Well, it was trying to make, you know, your whole family proud, and, um, you know, hopefully they'll be listening in too. Yeah, well, my mom will appreciate it. Maybe she'll figure out what I do. <laughs> we'll just try to make that because our, our audience uh, doesn't understand healthcare, and that's uh, – become a very popular uh, topic. And so, Nate, when from your travels and your interaction with thousands of healthcare uh, industry participants, both on the risk-bearing side as well as on the providing side and the, and the other supply side, what do you see that's the biggest I- issue as of today as we enter 2020? Well, I think the biggest issue is... Um and I was kind of joking, but um, most people really don't understand the healthcare problem. And um, what just came out was the fact that um, self-funded plans and full-risk plans, uh, their, their costs are escalating at about the same, same rate. And actually, some new data came out from Maryland, um, which has all of these cost containment programs and single payer programs that shows their their cost is also increasing at the same rate, um, which indicates that everything out there is not working. Um, 
And the reason it's not working is that people just don't understand what the problem is. And the problem is that 5% of the population consume 53% of the health care costs. 10% of the population consume 70% of the health care costs. So this idea that per unit cost is the problem, that pricing is the problem, is just plain wrong. Uh, the problem is that we have a small percentage of the population that consumes a huge percentage of the costs, and our delivery system is not designed to treat, to identify that population and to treat that population. And so until we focus on the real issue, which is this small population and the fact that we have have to identify the next at-risk uh, population that's going to be the five percenters, we're not going to fix the problem. So our delivery system is, is really a one-size-fits-all delivery system when we really have this small at-risk population that we need to hone in on, and we're not doing it. And just one more thing. So what we really need to do is to have payers and providers collaborate, but instead what we have is a payer population that is adverse to the provider population focusing on per unit cost as opposed to collaborating and designing a delivery system to focus on this high-risk population. Great. Nate, for our listeners who may not be familiar with healthcare, could you give a quick definition, full-risk plan, a self-funded plan? Because I think a lot of people think that, gosh, uh, Blue Cross or United Healthcare are, are the risk-bearing entities, but oftentimes they're the administrative layer and the risk is actually back with the employer. Right. Uh, about two-thirds of businesses are large enough so that they contract with a Blue Cross or United Healthcare just to be a plan administrator. And these large employers actually take their own risk uh, for healthcare. And Blue Cross or United Healthcare just simply administer the plan. Uh, then the smaller employers actually contract with the insurance companies to actually take the risk. So the insurance companies take the actuarial risk of, of the health care provided. So in my case, I'm a small insurer, a uh, small health, I'm sorry, I'm a small employer. So um, if people get sick in my company, it's Blue Cross who bears the risk. In the case of Boeing, if people get sick at Boeing, then it's Boeing who bears the cost of the the sickness in their company. So two-thirds of the employers are large enough to bear the cost, and the insurance companies just simply administer the plan. Great. I think the, our listeners will appreciate some of that uh, inside baseball definition. Nate, uh here in the state of Michigan, which I believe will be a swing state later this year, Michael Bloomberg is blanketing the airwaves with uh, claims of things he accomplished in New York, uh, uh, saying that fewer people are covered today, that pre-existing conditions are being exposed and don't have good coverage, and that he's going to lower uh, pharmaceutical drug prices. 
do you have any idea what his track record has been or any idea what goes into his plans to make those claims for improvement? Not really. Um, I think if you look at uh, the Democrats versus the Republicans, um, in general, uh, the Republicans have no plan. The Democrats, I would say, are probably more adverse to the drug companies. When I talked about the five percenters that consume 53% of the costs, the primary cost escalator among these high-cost claimants is drugs. It used to be that they, these high-cost claimants consumed about $8,000 per person. Now they consume for drugs. Now they consume well over, uh, I think it's $15,000 per person for drugs. So the primary es- the two primary escalators of cost right now in our country are not hospitals and physicians. It's actually drugs and insurance costs. And so we need to get control of those two costs. Um, and from my perspective, the Democrats probably are more adverse to the drug companies than the Republicans are. Other than that, neither one really has a plan that I think um, is particularly strong. Uh, The Democrats clearly want to give things away and are going to bust the budget. Uh, The Republicans just don't seem to have any plan whatsoever to deal with the crisis. And neither one is really focusing on the issues that I discussed earlier. Have you had a chance to read the Sanders bill that is titled Medicare for All? Uh, I did read it, and my first reaction was, it's not even Medicare. And my second reaction was, it looked like the Department of Defense model applied to health care. And I even had the quip, you know, if you like $600 hammers, in the Navy, you're going to really like the Sanders plan for health care insurance. Uh, accurate, or, or have you got a better view on Sanders' plan? Well, I'll give you a couple fun facts. The first one is a recent survey showed that 72% of Americans admit they don't fully understand how Medicare works. So anybody who is in favor of Medicare for all, the likelihood is that they don't even understand Medicare. Uh, The second thing is that it turns out that since employers cover more of the premium or or a a significant share of the employee's premium, that when you do go on Medicare, assuming you're not on a Medicare HMO, you're actually paying more out of pocket for for Medicare than you do for an employer-sponsored plan. Um, I'm actually on Medicare. it's the worst health plan I've ever been on in my entire life. It's a horrible health plan. Um, thank goodness I've saved up enough money so I can afford it. Um, the only choice people will have unless they are high income is to go into Medicare Advantage where you totally lose control of your health plan, of your health care. Um, it, it's as a very knowledgeable health care person and health care consumer, um, I would think that anybody, anybody who would advocate for Medicare for all um, uh, really doesn't understand health care, number one. And number two, as you said, it's, it, 
the cost would be astronomical. But the worst thing about Medicare, I get essentially the same care as I did under um, uh, commercial insurance. My cost is very close to the same in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs for my premium, and my providers are getting paid a third of what they did before. People don't understand this. So at the end of the day, what you will find is that there'll be a provider revolt if we move to Medicare for all. Um, So I think the disruption in the provider system will be unbelievable. And from my standpoint, if you want Medicare for all, you're going to want long lines, you're going to want access problems. Um, It'll be a total disaster. So um, I really don't understand um, why any knowledgeable person about health about healthcare who understands the payment system would ed- ever advocate for Medicare for all. Nate, I've spent some time in recent days with folks that are coming from a real absolutist free market mentality. Um, and it's interesting to me when ideology collides with reality. Um, there was uh, proposals floated to eliminate third-party health care coverage. And I liken that back. I had a great uncle who was a uh, country doctor at one time. And if you wanted to see the doctor, you had to pay the doctor. And if you didn't have cash, you know, he got paid in chickens. And and that was was the system uh, at that time. Um, And and obviously, we were much more sophisticated society today, much more choice in uh, what the uh, diagnostics and therapies are. Um, but what, the point I'm leading to is this. When I, I look around at what's existing out there, I look at the budgets for Medicare. I look at the budget for Medicaid. I look at the budget for CHIP. I look at the budget for the VA. All of these tax-supported plans, would it make any sense at all to consolidate that to a single plan, eliminate all the barriers and costs of qualifying. And if you're a U.S. citizen, you get that uh, at a a particular level. Um, And then supplement that with a a free market plan if you want to buy insurance above that. But but the key question, I I don't know if you've given any thought to, what would happen if we just consolidated all those tax-supported programs and just issued it and be done with it? Well, it would be nice, but there's so many special interests out there right now. Um, uh, I, I just don't know. Um, the The issue or the problem that we have, and 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 the cost problem with the free market system as it applies to healthcare, is we have an asymmetric market. It's much like um, when I go to take my car into the shop and they tell me that my transducer is broken and it's going to cost $800. Um, I don't, you know, at that point in time, my car's broken. I don't know what to do. I just basically trust my dealer and I get it fixed. Um, When you go to the doctor and they tell you that you have this kidney problem, um, what do you do? Um, Most people just basically have to trust their physician. And unfortunately, from a pricing standpoint, 
you've picked your health plan, you go in and you, you get it fixed. The, the cost problem in healthcare right now has to do with these very, very sick people, and um, we just aren't knowledgeable enough to make legitimate choices. Um, and even when we're given the choice, for example, if you have pancreatic cancer, you may be better off flying from Michigan to the Mayo Clinic, and you probably would get better care. I'm just making this up. Uh, most people would say, well, I'd rather just stay home and get care locally. Um, so we're not very good healthcare consumers is the problem. So the idea of, quote, free market, um, we're just not knowledgeable consumers, number one. Number two, um, one of the biggest problems we have in our healthcare system right now is administrative costs. Um, we're spending about $2,500 per capita to have these uh, third-party systems, which we call um, commercial payers, um, where we're fighting denials and we're they're fighting providers and you know, adding this administrative layer. Um, and if you look at the administrative costs of the free quote free market versus the government, um, you wonder if it's worth it. So I just don't know what the answer is at this point in time, whether it's better to have the government regulators versus the free market regulators at this point. Nate, the insight you've got about the reimbursement rates to providers being squeezed and going down is one end of the spectrum. Uh, several years ago, you had some really great data about the average household income of an American family and how much the uh, premiums and co-pays uh, and deductibles would cost them. And from that side of the spectrum, my recollection is that that math didn't work either. Am I remembering that correctly? Right. The, pre the co-payments and deductibles and premium contribution have escalated far faster than the worker's income. So we have on one side, providers may not have enough income to uh, provide services. And on the other side, we have consumers who can't afford to buy the insurance or buy the care. And in the middle, we have these two for-profit behemoths in the pharmaceutical industry and in the health plan industry. Um, how do we get out of this morass? <laughs> well, well, there's a reason for that. Actually, there's some new data that just came out. And the reason for that, the insurance industry is subsidizing the underfunded government programs. Medicare and Medicaid, if you look at them on a, on a totally in, um, inflation, medical inflation-adjusted basis, has been basically flat in terms of payments over the last two decades. So in other words, on an, for inpatient care, Medicare and Medicaid have not increased their payments to hospitals. So what's happened is in order to, to stay in business and stay state-of-the-art, the only place that hospitals have been able to go... Now, I, I have to say 
that hospitals have not been the most efficient. There's a lot of mismanagement in hospitals and health systems, so I'm not here to say that hospitals shouldn't do a hell of a lot better. But in order to stay in business and compensate for their inefficiencies and mismanagement, hospitals have had to raise their rates. And the only place they've been able to do that to compensate for the underfunded government programs is the insurance company, is the uh, privately insured. So we've had this hidden tax, um, and in order to, um, and so, so that they haven't been able to raise their premiums to do that. So they've raised copayments and deductibles, and that's been passed on to the employee, and that's made healthcare unaffordable. So one of the solutions would be to raise Medicare and Medicaid uh, reimbursement in order to remove that hidden tax. But of course, that ends up raising government expenditures, and that's a huge problem. So we're in this vicious cycle of uh, not being able to figure out how to solve the problem. And so the solution basically is to now go back and start hammering providers and blaming providers for all this. And you see all of this literature that it's the provider's fault. And eventually they're going to start reducing reimbursement to providers, which they're already doing. And hospitals are going to close and physicians are going to stop taking Medicare and Medicaid. And access is going to become a problem. And we're already seeing that as an issue. So we're in a really difficult time in healthcare because uh, really, the answer is we've spent two decades of trying to compensate for underfunded government reimbursement by hammering the employers and now, employees. Now, let me uh, see if I can illustrate that. So let's say that and I'm not on Medicare yet, coming up quick, but I'm not on Medicare. And so I have my commercial plan, which is a uh, high deductible plan, catastrophic coverage. And let's say I have a gallbladder issue and you who are on Medicare, you have the exact same issue. We get admitted to a hospital on the same day. We're in rooms next to each other, or maybe it's an old hospital and we're a semi-private room with just a sheet between us. Um, that's horrifying. No, uh, the, 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 uh, but the point is this, I'm going to be, yeah, yeah, you're, your the when your gallbladder surgery is complete and my gallbladder surgery is complete the hospital has to charge my insurance more because medicaid med excuse me medicare does not pay enough so the hidden tax falls onto my private health insurance which shows up in my premium, which starts to drive the unaffordability for consumers. Is, is that the right flow? Am I thinking about that the right way? You will be charged about 240% more than I will for the same procedure. Yes. So when you look at a program like a Medicare for all, the notion has to be that magically all the reimbursement rates are going to collapse down to a point where the health, the health systems, the hospitals, as you said earlier, would be in revolt. They would not be able to survive based on the contours of that legislation. Well, they would. So there's three components. There's cost, access, and quality. 
And so if you impact cost, um, either access or quality would suffer, or somehow by magical thinking, the hospital would have to readjust somehow and be able to provide the same service and the same access and the same quality. Um, the other issue to keep in mind is not only would the um, would the hospital be reimbursed at a much higher rate, but the doctor would be reimbursed at a much higher rate. Then the doctor says, well, hold on a second. If under Medicare for all, I'm going to get paid a whole lot less you know, maybe I'm just going to drop out of Medicare and I'm just going to take, a, uh, instead of seeing 20 patients a day, I'm going to see six patients a day and I'm going to take, I'm going to demand that they pay cash because there's a severe shortage of physicians in this country that's only going to get worse as two out of five baby boomer physicians reti retire in the next decade. And I just, uh, and that's all I'm going to do. I call it Drexit doctors ex ex exiting Medicare and Medicaid. And already we're be we see this all over the country. And so the doctor just says, fine, there's a shortage. If you want spine surgery um, from one of the best, you're just going to have to pay cash. And you can go figure it out with the insurance companies. And I'll just play, play golf uh, two days a week. I'll do cash-based payments the other three days. And have a nice day. And, and that is some of the things that I've, I've heard from the folks that are way on the edge about pure free market, um, which you know, obviously doesn't address the access issue, um, but nor does the other side, because the other side of you it would be get in line to get that spine surgery. And one of the things I've been thinking about, I, it, it, I don't think to have a week go by that someone doesn't say, hey, look, I've got this company to invest in and uh, you can detect cancer off a urine sample or something like that. And if, if that was true, then that would be lower cost, more efficient. What do we need to do to keep the innovation engine humming? Well, it's a good question. I mean, um Again, my interest in innovation has to do much more with the backside of healthcare, that is, the really sick patients. Um, people say um, uh, we don't need hospitals anymore, um, and they're always talking about Netflix and Amazon, so on and so forth. My son is a hospital administrator, his hospital's full. He says people don't die. Um, you know, hospitals are really full um, with with 80-year-old people with multiple chronic conditions um, in beds. They're full with people with cancer. People don't die from cancer anymore. They, they live a long time, and they have multiple chronic conditions. Um, we, an interesting fun fact is that the number of acute care visits to primary care physicians is actually going down. Um, the reason for that is that we don't have enough primary care physicians, and when you're sick, you can't get in to see them. So, um, it's, and so urgent care is becoming really popular. Um, and so my interest in innovation 
is how do we care for all these very old, very sick people? Because we're going to have a bunch of them, and they're going to drive up costs. And that's where I see the need. Um, everyone's talking about primary care. That's not where the cost problem is. The cost problem is on the other side where we have, we're going to have a whole bunch of people with um, cancer and, mo- and five different chronic conditions that are living till 85, 90, and we- we're not going to know how to take care of them or what to do with them. And they're going to be driving up costs as we develop new drugs to keep these people alive. That is a uh, wonderful insight into this. And it, I want to shift gears uh, a little bit here and uh, talk about some of the policies that have been placed for so long. And I, I'm an advocate of taxing the employer-provided benefits. Um, it's compensation. Uh, there was a day when a popular benefit for people was a company car. And when those started to be taxed as compensation, because it is, uh, the company cars basically went away. And I have a theory that if you taxed people for the value of their health plan, they might start questioning what's in the plan itself and that that might introduce the consumer in. Um, Obviously, this is a very dangerous political rail for any politician to take on. Uh, But I'm wondering, just as a healthcare economist, any merit to this at all? Um, I don't think so. Um, and, and the reason I don't is that uh, there's the vast majority of the population, uh, first of all, they don't understand their health care. Um, they wouldn't be able to discriminate uh, between a good health care plan and a, a bad health care plan. Um, they, um, there aren't Kaisers out there around the country you know, they're just looking at co-payments and deductibles. Um, it's unfortunate. I've, I've spoken to um, the teachers' unions here in California. Um, they're, they really don't understand um, health care, um, how to use it. Um, what we need to do is design plan. We need to advocate for them and design plans that make sense uh, for them. I think we need to be more, uh, we need to help them choose. Uh, uh, for example, um, for, there's a, I call it the rule of 47. 47% of the people don't get colonoscopies. 47% of women don't get mammograms. Um, they don't get the appropriate interventions, flu shots, and so on and so forth. To me, where we need to be focusing on is somehow getting people to to um, actually um, taxing them if they don't get the appropriate interventions because those people who don't get colonoscopies end up getting colon cancer and and uh, mammograms get breast cancer and so on and it, we have the ability to prevent a lot of these five percenters so from my perspective again the healthcare system isn't designed to deal with the cost problem that we have. So um, that's where we need to start. Um, is, is Look, as part of that cost problem, it, that the last stats I saw was that the 
average American's private health insurance plan. They held it for about 18 months uh, because they changed jobs or the employer switched plans. Um, and would that be part of the problem in that if you have a 52-year-old person who needs a colonoscopy and they're insured by payer A, uh, and pay races, gosh, if they don't get that colonoscopy till next year, I may not need to pay for it. And when the potential awful consequences of not having that colonoscopy manifest, they'll be long gone. I mean, isn't that part of the issue is that healthcare is longitudinal, uh, good health you know, prevention, mammograms, colonoscopies, flu shots and the like, those are longitudinal. But the payment system's focused on a 12-month period, which really doesn't seem to make any sense. Am I kind of getting to where, where the point that you're driving here? Right, right. I mean, th you think about that, and you, and you think about how, how many payers have actually said, rather than denying care, we think this patient should actually get a more expensive treatment. You know, we're not we're not thinking about those kinds of things. Or, um, you know, for example, Amazon, a self-funded payer has actually developed a relationship with the City of Hope, which is a, can a specialized cancer treatment center, and said, what we, what we think we want to do, and I don't know all the details, but the theory is, according to the literature, that if one of our employees gets cancer, we want to send them to the City of Hope for a second opinion or first opinion, because we want to get a specialist to cancer specialist to intervene right away. You know, see, those kinds of things make sense to me and, uh, because that's one of those high-cost claimant type of 5%er situations. Um, Walmart's trying to, has done the same thing with the Mayo where they say they incentivize their employees to go to Mayo, and they found that when they send their cancer patients to Mayo, they found a lot of misdiagnosis and mistreatment um, by some of the community patients that were treated by community-based physicians so it, again we this is where i get to you know people talk about taxing and this and that to me the issue is what's the cost of a misdiagnosis what's the cost of the wrong treatment you know so we're focusing on the wrong issue of from my perspective it, it's really how do we get people to, to get the right interventions how do we get people to the right doctors in the, in the first place? And how do we optimize the, the chance that they're getting the right treatment? And if somebody, for example, has cystic fibrosis or HIV, which are, again, some of these high-cost treatments, uh, diseases where we spend $250,000, $300,000 per year per person, how do we make sure that they're getting the right care, coordinated care, so that we're not um, spending too much or, or giving them the wrong drugs or whatever. These are the kinds of things that we need to be focusing on, and our delivery system isn't designed to do that. So we're talking about Medicare for all, and we're talking about, you know, should we tax or should we not tax? And that's not the issue. The issue is our delivery system is designed to just ping pong these people around and give them deductibles and for payers to puke all over providers. And we're not focused on on dealing with the real issue, which is how can we get patients the right care? 
it, and that's a very that's my, that's my speech. Well, <laughs> it, well, you know what? It, look, it, when I look at this from a policy point of view, uh, where we're in agreement, Republicans are just flat out bewildered. Um, they don't know which way to turn. Um, they're very disorganized. Uh, Democrats are going to throw out policy proposals that there's going to be a chicken in every pot and everything's going to, to work out famously. Um, but upon examination, you find it, it's kind of nonsense. People need to think about the future of a politician that said, hey, uh, our health care system isn't designed for the issues of today. Um, you know, it would there'd be no villain in the news cycle to, to be constantly uh, pounded on. It wouldn't be something that could be used as a cudgel by one party over the other. And in the meantime, uh, our country continues just to drift with this very central issue uh, remaining unaddressed. Um, right. Nate, Nate one, one thing, I, I, as you know, I'm a, 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 an advocate or a fan, if you will, of um, Medicare Part D. And, you know, my view on that is that it's a fair fight, uh, that we've pitted the for-profit health plans versus the for-profit pharmaceuticals. There's actually leverage in the model. Um, if Pfizer wants to put Lipitor into the formulary, uh, they've got to hit a price point or United Healthcare will kick them out. Um, you, you know, you put that same model inside of uh, CMS, Medicare, and Pfizer will just go get their lobbyists to, to put that in at whatever cost they want. Um, it's Medicare Party's also real insurance. Uh, you get in, it's reasonable cost, even if you're not using any drugs. Uh, but if you don't get in um, when you're eligible, it just it, it costs a lot more, like trying to buy house insurance after the house is already on fire. Um, last numbers I saw still running at 95% subscriber satisfaction, still running nearly 40% below cost projections. Is this something that's been done right? Um, it's interesting. I'm, again, I'm a subscriber to Part D. I buy most, uh, at least half of my drugs on good RX for cash. It's cheaper. Uh, it, it just turns out there's an, there's a, um, a, an app where you can just go online and find the drugs cheaper, um, which is even a better model for uh, as far as uh, the market's concerned. Um, I just it's still more expensive than Canada, um, the Part D drugs, and um, I don't understand why. Um, I think it's okay, but again, I can buy my Lipitor at a at a pharmacy with an app cheaper than I can get it on uh, Part D. Yeah, we discovered that too for certain uh, hypertension medications for people in our family, uh, ordering them from Canadian pharmacy. And even though we're sitting here on the Canadian border, we don't even have to cross the bridge to uh, to get there. Uh, Nate, you you've been an outstanding guest on the Common Bridge. Uh, I, I, what haven't we covered or what would you like people to understand or um, any calls to action? What, what, what else do we need to get out there in the podcast well, I think, world? I think the, the one thing, from, from my standpoint, as far as reform is concerned, there's two or three things that I would like to see. Because the one thing that I spend most of my time in, on is I spend most of my time with doctors. 
And I see that healthcare costs as a percentage of the GDP is is somewhat leveling off. Um, uh, hospitals and physicians um, reimbursement from the insurance company, companies is flattening out. And so from my standpoint, we need to get control over administrative costs. I see no reason why um, medical necessity of, by United Healthcare is different than Blue Cross of uh, Michigan, for example. Why we can't have a clearinghouse for medical necessity. Um, that would save um, billions of dollars so that um, if an MRI is deemed to be medical, medically necessary, it's deemed to be medically necessary for all. Um, denial management is, is a huge cost. And so consolidating a claims clearinghouse and a medical necessity clearinghouse for all payers um, would, save, would save billions, and it would be an incremental change. So there's one way of, of submitting forms for all payers. There's one way of getting uh, pre-authorization for all payers. And I would say we could probably save tens of billions of dollars by doing that. And it's a simple incremental change. The second thing is drug costs. Um, again, there's no reason why we can't get the same kinds of rates that they get in Canada for our, for our drugs, at least for Medicare and Medicaid. And the third thing is, I don't understand why Blue Cross of, say, um, Alabama can have 90% market share, but providers can't have 90% market share. So for me, when I think about healthcare reform, if we could just have a single clearinghouse for medical necessity and claims, if we could just have buy drugs just like every other country, and if we could just apply the same antitrust rules to health plans as we do to providers, we could say we could those three simple incremental changes could cut healthcare costs by 30%, and we we would have time to begin to reform the entire system. So that that's what I'm advocating for. Uh, Nate, you're, you're the only person I know that has the insight into the um, economics, uh, the flow of funds, the diagnostic treatment. Um, and real solutions that uh, could work. Uh, I would say I'm heartily on board with all three of your recommendations. Um, they indeed um, are what the Common Bridge is about. Um, and uh, the only thing I would adjust would be if they're saying you don't need that MRI and you want to come out of pocket for it, great, you should have that option if, uh, if that's the care you think you want and you have a way to pay for it. Um, Sure. But the, uh, the common bridge is a, not about ideology. It's not about partisan politics. It's about let's look at real problems and let's find real solutions. And I know that America's grateful for experts like you that are, are willing to lean in uh, and give us these kinds of ideas. So thank you for being part of the common bridge today, Nate. Uh, do appreciate it, my friend. Hey, thanks for inviting me. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.